Hello, this is Rabbi Eric Levy. I'm pleased to bring to you the Sidra of Shofatim in the book of Devarim. It may be unwise to overgeneralize the connection between all the laws that we are uh, about to read in this Parsha, and as well as their connection to the Parsha before and afterwards. But I believe that all the laws in the Mishneh Torah which started in chapter 12 in Parshat Re'eh and extend all the way through chapter 26 in Kitabo, all of them have to do, in my opinion, with establishing a functioning and moral and religious state, a holy people in the promised land of Israel. Or, as they say, or as actually we are required to say in the commandment of Vidui Masa, which is the final commandment in this Mishnah Torah, quote, look from your holy dwelling, speaking to God, from the heavens and bless your nation Israel and the land that you gave us, just like you promised to our parents, a land flowing with milk and honey, which means these are the things that we need to do in order to make sure that the state of Israel exists as a holy nation in its holy land. The Sidra of Shoftim begins with perhaps the most essential responsibility that a viable and moral state has, a system of law and order in capital L, with a capital L and a capital O. I should mention before I begin that there is a huge amount of Torah Shabal Peh, oral law, connected with all of these laws in the Mishnah Torah in general and the laws of, Mish, uh, of Shoftim in, in, in specific, in particular. Um, these oral laws define when, where, how, under what circumstances these laws apply and when, when, when they do not apply. Uh, in some cases, the oral law is at odds with the text and seems to uh, uh, not agree or, or uh, take what is the plain sense of a sentence and say that it actually means something else. And it's easy to see where the oral law emanates from. That is, you can look at the laws that not only are mentioned here for, in many cases, a second time. They've already been mentioned in the Torah, but they are mentioned very often in a slightly altered format, which sort of begs that there are differences that do not immediately apparently, that do not apparently uh, meet the eye. Um, in addition, there are anomalies in the language, there are strange, there are strange syntaxes, there are redundancies, and all of this seems to be hinting at an oral corpus of law that is not written in the text, but that was passed down, obviously, uh, mouth to mouth. Uh, oral law, by the way, is not an anachronism in biblical times. It was well established that Hammurabi's laws, which were written in the 1700s, uh, were applied by the court systems. We have the actual legal rulings of those court systems, and there's no question that they were applying those rules based on not, on, not only Hammurabi's written laws, but on an oral corpus, which was uh, not immediately apparent. It's clear that their legal rulings take into things into consideration, which were not written down. Now, I'll occasionally point out these textual anomalies, the syntax, the strained syntaxes, the redundancies, and I'll occasionally mention the oral laws that are derived based on these anomalies. However, the focus of the shirim of Shnai Mikrach Targum is on the text itself, so mostly I'll stick uh, to the plain sense. And now let's go back to the issue of law and order, chapter 16, verse 18, the first aliyah of the uh, Sidra of Shoftim. Shoftim v'shotrim titein l'cha b'chol sh'arecha, sh'adonai l'cha notein l'cha, Shoftim are judges, and Shotrim are police, or people who carry out the verdicts set down by the judges. That is law and order. These you should set up in all of your gates that God is giving to your tribes, and they will, or perhaps they must, judge the nation with righteousness, meaning with correct, with just 
with, with right judgments. Now, it is well known from archaeological digs that the main gates of all of the major cities had long benches attached to them, and these benches which were where judges sat and held court. They decided general law as well as individual cases and suits and trials. And that is the sense of Sha'arecha here. It doesn't really mean gates, although it does, but it really means courts, your court systems. And God is saying, wherever you have a town gate, meaning a city of any significant size, there must be a local court set up there. Lo tatemishpat, lo takir panim, lo tikach shochad, ki ashochad yaver enei chachamim v'salev divrei tzadikim, tzedek tzedek tirdof leman tachyeh, v'yarashta et aret shashar adonai lohecha notein lach. Don't cause injustice. The word tate actually means don't lean or tilt or cause justice to fall. And it's the opposite, I think, of the word yashar, which means straight or just. Do not recognize faces, literally, which really means do not uh, prefer one party uh, in a courtroom over another, either because you know them or they're a friend or they donate to your political campaign, uh, although that may really be an issue of bribery, which we'll get to in a second. Or it could be that you recognize their face because they're uh, famous. You always hear about those Hollywood cases where people get off light because uh, they're just so famous they affect the judge and the judges are being, are, are being told to act completely objectively. Uh, the Torah goes on to say, don't take dri- bribes, since bribery blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous, or perhaps it perverts righteous rulings. Chase after righteousness, tzedek tzedek dove, pure righteousness or, or pure justice, in order that you survive and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Note the word shofet is used over over here, shofet, mishpat, and shevet as well. Um, the word shofet uh, actually derives, originates from uh, the more concrete noun of shevet, or tribe, since essentially the tribal leader of the shevet, with a bet, or a vet, was the judge, the shofet, with a fe. And notice that the bet and the fe are very close to each other. They're both bilabial uh, consonants. Uh, so essentially, the head of the Shevet was the Shofet, who issued the laws and the rulings, the Mishpat. All of that comes from the same, uh, the same uh, root, the same, uh, uh, the same noun root. There was no separation, of course, at those times between the executive branch and the judicial branch. In fact, the opposite. The expectation was that a leader of a tribe or of a nation must care first and foremost about taking care of his subjects. He must be directly involved in their legal issues. That's the, the whole point of the famous story with Solomon and uh, the uh, the woman who were either innkeepers or prostitutes probably who came to with him with the court case about whose baby it belonged to. The whole point is that even the lowest uh, levels of society could get a direct hearing with the highest level of society that is the king. And that's the right way. That's the way it should have been and that's the way it should always be. And that's why there must be court systems set up and that's why the leader must also take into uh, his hands um, uh, making sure that justice is done. Now the possibility for corruption is clearly there, but that doesn't mean just because there's a possibility that power corrupts and that he'll judge uh, uh, you know, inappropriately, all of that is true, but that doesn't diminish the need for the person who is responsible to care for the people to really care for them and their legal issues. Um, the double use of the word tzedek, 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 tirdof here is very interesting because usually you get a double verb when you want to stress that something really needs to be done. So it could have said, radof, tirdof, tzedek, thou shalt surely chase for or pursue uh, justice or righteousness. Um, so perhaps instead of the, the fact that we're using a double noun, 
tzedek tzedek instead of a double verb, radov tirdov, it means that God is sort of putting before us that there is this sense of, there is this form, there is this uh, element called pure justice, like pure goal. And not just your average justice, your average appropriate behavior in courts, but some kind of super without any kind of stain, 100% uh, uncorrupted justice. And that concept, that abstract concept is an ideal which needs to be pursued and when it's found, it needs to be applied. So the first thing for require, require for maintaining and flourishing the state of Israel is a well-defined and easy-to-access justice system. And that takes care of the first section of laws. The second law that we're about to get into is the question of maintaining pure monotheism, that is not diluting it with any type of inappropriate accoutrements. And now we move on to the, that subject in the next law. Lo titalacha ashera kol eitzel mizbach asherah Verse 21, don't plant for yourselves an asherah of any kind of tree next to an altar of the Lord your God that you will make for yourselves. On the subject of the asherah, it's important to distinguish between the Phoenician goddess by that name. Asherah was the mother of Baal, the, uh, the, the wife of Il. And her representation was a, uh, a tree of life, a tree, there's uh, statues and, and cutouts of animals coming to suckle from this tree of life, who is the Asherah herself. But it's important to distinguish from the Asherah herself with the name of uh, the tree, which was disconnected from its origins. Um, I'll give you an example. It's similar to the idea of Kleenex or Vaseline. Um, that is, it used to be that these products were just called uh, facial tissues or uh, petroleum jelly, and the companies were Kleenex and Vaseline. But the companies became the, 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 the highest quality and most ubiquitous products came from these companies to the point where the names of the companies became the names of the products themselves for all intents and purposes. And the same thing is happening here. That is, yes, there was an Asherah goddess that people would actually do Avodat Elidim to. They would worship this goddess. But when the goddess became this nice idea of a tree standing next to an altar idea, um, then it was removed from the original, the origin of it. That is, people stopped thinking about the uh, the origin of it, the fact that it was a goddess, and just said, oh, nice tree next to the altar. And it, it's similar to the idea of an earth goddess theory or the Gaia theory that persists, that persists to this day. The idea that God is represented through nature and by worshiping nature, somehow we worship God. Um, and so one could essentially use that tree, that Asherah tree by the altar without invoking or without intending to invoke the Asherah herself where the tree originated from. Um, you know, people just like to have a nice shady and verdant tree next to their altar. It, it was a nod to the beauty of of God's natural world, an idea of lushness, an idea of peace and comfort, an idea of fertility to a certain degree with the fruit coming from the tree. So in my opinion, the Asherah in this case is not an avodat elilim. It is not idol worship, but it is avodat zarah, an inappropriate worship. And I think it, 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 I think there are three possible reasons why God is saying this Asherah tree is inappropriate. One is he's saying that, listen, as much as you would like to remove the original goddess herself, Asherah, from the tree, the goddess herself persists in the image. And even if you don't think of it that way, I'll give you an example. Be sort of like using 
cross like crosses to hold up Torahs in a shul. So like you'd open up the Aron Kodesh and there would be like big crosses and each one would have, uh, you know, uh, a, uh, a, 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 a Torah on it that you would take down. And you would say, well, it's just a nice shape that's good for holding Torahs. Um, and I think what God may be saying is, listen, it's very nice that I could just make a cross that doesn't necessarily invoke somebody else's religion, but the bottom line is, there's too much baggage. You cannot remove the origins completely. There's another possibility, which is that the whole Gaia theory stuff, this earth, not earth goddess, but that the earth itself represents, I don't know, the feminine or fertile aspects of God, uh, or that God could be understood through his nature, through nature, was not appropriate for a place to sacrifice. You want to go around and look at trees and say, "Wow, that's a beautiful tree. I'm so glad. I'm so get, glad that God creates this beautiful world." That's fine, but you can't incorporate that idea into worship itself. The third possibility, I think, is the opposite of my second possibility, which is that maybe there is nothing inherently wrong with having a nice shady tree, something to remind you of God's uh, love of this earth and the beautiful things that he creates. The only problem is that since the polytheists were, and the, the, the immoral religionists of the, of the Canaanites, the Phoenicians, were using the tree to represent their Asherah goddess herself, therefore you could not use a similar item uh, because the tree itself became an abomination, not because of anything inherently wrong in and of itself, but because um, it was used in an appropriate way. And I think this third possibility, whether it's right or not, fits in with the next commandment. Don't erect for yourself a matzeva, which is a single stoned altar, which the Lord your God hates. Now here it's clear that there's nothing inherently wrong with a single stone altar, as there may be with Asherah. There's nothing built in wrong. I mean, we know that for sure, because Moshe used 12 single stone altars, matzevot, as part of the sacrifices before the giving of the, to- giving of the Torah, right? Are Sinai. Uh, not only that, our forefathers, uh, Yaakov established the Matsevot, they all established Matsevot. Um, but what, what happened apparently was that during our sojourn, our, 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 uh, our exile in Egypt, the Phoenicians were using these single stone altars as their primary altar, and it, and it became to represent this immoral polytheistic uh, pass your children through fire worship so they became tainted not because of anything inherently wrong with themselves but because of the way they were used and once they were used inappropriately we don't want to use them as well they became a zara an inappropriate form of worship so you know those are the possibilities as far as the asherah tree and certainly by the matseva rule the single altar rule uh, both of these commandments by the way stress the word lacha if you make for yourselves uh, and I think what God is saying is, listen, you may think that it's a great idea. Like, I know you're not trying to worship any other gods. And you may think that what you're doing here is a great idea. Oh, I want to build a tree because I connect to God better that way. But essentially, what God is saying is that religion is not a free-for-all. It's not – there is some flexibility on a personal level, but there there are standards – uh, and those standards are important. What you may think may work for you um, has an overall deleterious effect on the system. Now we move on to chapter 17, verse 1. Don't sacrifice uh, to the Lord your God an ox or a seh, which is either a sheep or a goat. 
that has a blemish or any bad thing because it is an abomination for the Lord your God. Here too, I think Moshe is stressing the importance of standardizing worship. It's not that the blemish itself is an abomination for God. Uh, God really cares whether, you know, the, the you know, there's a, you know, a blindness in a, or, or there's some kind of uh, disease in it. It's not the animal itself that's important, it's the act of the person that's important. If a person starts deciding for himself, oh, this animal's kosher enough for, you know, I'm not a rich guy and I know it has a blemish, but, you know, it's okay. So even though, again, this guy is is trying to sacrifice to God, he's being monotheistic, but by taking shortcuts, by defining his own rules and what he thinks is right and wrong, by putting his own kosher symbol on whatever uh, condition he wants, that is an abomination. That idea of doing whatever you want, whenever you want, that is an abomination. Um, the details of the blemishes can, of, of course, which blemishes are uh, render a sacrifice unacceptable or an abomination. Again, not the animal itself, but the act of bringing the animal is an, an abomination. So the details can be found, of course, in the book of Vayikra. And, of course, there's... Uh, there, there's an, uh, anomalous uh, words here, such as asher yevomum kol davara, any bad thing. And all of this begs for interpretation. What does that mean, kol davara? What is it adding? And, of course, that is where the oral law comes in. But, as I said, that's really beyond the scope of these uh, lessons. The next section seems to combine these two existential requirements together. That is, these two uh, these two aspects of religious slash political life that makes sure that the nation remains viable. One is a just and pure legal system, and the other one is a pure monotheism, as discovered by the forefathers and defined in Moshe's law, uh, God's law through Moshe. And this is probably a good time to point out uh, the use of the word key, uh, which introduces many of these laws. The form is key when something should happen, this is what you should do. And the simplest sense, I think, of what God is saying by introducing all these laws with key is that when one becomes a nation, inevitably situations come up, some positive, but many negative. And as a, a result, God is specifying how to deal with all these how to deal, how to behave in the right way. That is, the laws are not specifically being told only as a reaction to some negative situation that may pop up. It's just, listen, this is the negative situations, and you can imagine how one could behave badly in those situations, and this is the way I want you to behave so that when these situations do come up, they're handled quite well. So again, the format is key when this very often difficult situation takes place. Don't be fooled. This is the law. This is the right thing you should do. When you find in your midst, in one of your gates, that the Lord is, your God has given you, either a man or a woman who does evil, what is evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, and transgresses his covenant, and he, or she obviously, goes and worships other gods and bows down to them, or to the sun, or to the moon, or any of the host of heavens, all of which I did not command. Now, there's a lot of unusual syntax. There's quite a bit of repetition in these two verses. Rashi, for instance, essentially changes the difficult asher lo tziviti, uh, which I did not command, regarding the sun and the moon and the stars, to asher tziviti lo, which I commanded you not to do. But I think, the, I think that may lose a little bit the... The effect of the unusual asher lo tziviti, that which I did not command. I mean, after all, why would 
Why would we think that God would command us to worship anything other than himself? Why would he think that we would worship the sun, the moon, the stars? And I think this hints to something I mentioned when I, I uh, taught Sidrat Vaitchanan, that these heavenly bodies seem to have a special category. The Ramban, for instance, raised the possibility that God specifically set up these um, uh, sun, moon, and stars to either represent or be angelic uh, creatures that would be um, intermediaries between God and the other nations. And in fact, the other nations were supposed to or were allowed to at least uh, pray to the moon and the stars uh, or, or the hosts of heaven uh, to somehow get through God in an intermediary way. But God is saying, I told, I never told you to do it, which means you can't do such a thing because you need to communicate directly to me. Um, and, and therefore, by doing so, and again, we have a situation where... I, it's not only somebody who transgresses the law by being polytheistic, but somebody who tries to be monotheistic in the, in the wrong way. So God is stressing here that doing so is a breach of his covenant, just like worshiping actual idols are. Um, it's interesting that, that God specifies man and woman here, where usually the Torah just mentions man and understood that it's both. You can make your own assessments on, on why that is. Uh, the word Sha'arecha here is a little different than before. Sha'arecha doesn't seem to mean courts. It seems to mean settlements. Uh, but perhaps the word Sha'arecha is used because uh, we're about to return to the idea that should this happen in Echad Sha'arecha, one of your settlements, you need to go to the Shar, you need to take it to the court. To wit, uh, the, the God continues, Notice a lot of repetition. The man and the woman, the man and the woman. Maybe the woman's being um, emphasized because, uh, well, I'll get to it in a second. Um, let me translate. And it is told to you, that is, somebody tells you about the above transgression, or you hear about it, which means you weren't told about it specifically, you just discovered it. Uh, you must investigate it well. Again, this is a commandment. You must investigate it well. And if it turns out, or when it turns out, that it is true and correct, this thing, that an abomination was done in Israel, you will take out that man or that woman that did who did this evil thing to the gates, which means you must try and convict them in the court systems, the man and the woman, and you shall stone them and they will die. And again, there's the repetition which sort of begs for oral law. In the simplest sense, I think the Torah is repeating man and woman because well, perhaps, I mean, I don't know for sure, but perhaps the, there's a tendency to be more merciful to a woman when she commits a sin, to forgive and forget. So therefore, um, the Torah is saying, listen, a person is a person. If they commit an abomination, if they do idol worship or or avodah zarah, or inappropriate worship at this level, they, they need to be treated equally. Um, there's another um, kind of anomaly in the text here. It says, ha'ishahu, ha'ishahahi, specifically that man and that woman, uh, and, and maybe the Torah here is saying that in the court system, make sure that, you know, you get the right person. You might know that a crime is committed. You just want to have somebody fit the spot, so, so somebody take the fall, so make sure that you the identity is as well known as the act itself. And now, regarding the witnesses of this court system, according to the testimony of two witnesses or three witnesses, the condemned will be put to death. He will not be put to death based on the testimony of a single witness. In my opinion, it's impossible to read this text without knowing that there's oral law that, that's backing it up. I mean, otherwise the text doesn't make a lot of sense. If two witnesses are okay, then obviously three witnesses are okay. And why not mention four or five? 
So the oral law here is, is, I think, pretty straightforward. It says that if three come together as a single witness group, and one of them is shown to be false, a plotter, which is an issue that we'll get to in the future aliyot, you can't say, listen, okay, this guy's no good, but we still have the minimum of two. No. If they come together as a single entity, then should any one of them fall, the entire entity falls, even though theoretically, if that guy had just not shown up to court that day, everything would have gone well. Uh, Ibn Ezra explores other possible meanings of this anomalous language, two and three, but not one, and concludes that since there are too many possibilities, we must rely on the Masora, on our oral law. The hand of the witness must be the first to kill him, meaning they, he will have, that, that witness group will have to cast the first stone, literally, and the hand of the rest of the nation follows. You will burn away the evil from your midst. And again, I think the simplest sense here, we're being instructed on how to behave correctly in a legal way. And it's not just that the trial must be in public and then that's being emphasized, but the punishment must be in public because there's the sense that the witnesses can't walk away from this and the nation can't walk away. It's not like I say, oh, he's guilty, and then I go back to watching TV and I forget there's actually somebody dying out there. No, you have to witness. You have to be involved in that process. If you're going to convict a guy, you've got to pull the trigger because if you don't pull the trigger, it could just be some abstract thing. It's only if you have to pull the trigger will you really make sure that the law is carried out carefully and accurately. And I think that's what God is trying to say here. Uh, the next section, starting in verse 8, deals with the importance not only of setting up a system of law and order at every town, but a Supreme Court that can supervise and give final rulings on difficult cases, be they civil cases or capital cases, or religious cases, religious rulings. Rashi asserts that this whole issue is pretty much halachic. It's all talking about religious issues. And the word revote really means a, a, a conflict not between a, a plaintiff and a defendant, but between two rabbis on a council or two religious leaders on a council. Uh, and Rashi asserts that Dam and Din are both halakhic issues. The Ramban points out that the plain sense is revote means court cases, and Dam and Din means civil and capital cases, actually the other way, capital and civil cases. And as I'll try to explain, I think, Elu ve'elu divre Elohim chayim, that they're both right, and that the Supreme Court will be responsible for both civil, capital, and religious cases as well. Ki palemi mechad avar la mishpat, bein dam ledam, bein din ladin, uvein nega la nega, divre rivot b'sha'arecha, vikamta, vikamta, vialita, when a ruling on a legal issue is in your, uh, in, your, in, your, in your courts, be it civil or capital or afflictions, which I think refers to the laws of Tzorat and other impurities, that is halachic disputes, any kind of legal dispute that should escape you, the word yipale means to be separate or hidden or beyond you, which means that you just don't know how to rule, you shall get up and go to the place that God has selected. Remember, the format of these laws is key when a difficult situation will respond command, this is what you must be doing in these cases. Um, and just as the judicial and executive are not to be separated, as I said before, the shevet and the shofet and the mishpat are all together, so too here it's, it's declaring that the judicial and the religious are not to be separated. You have to set up the court in the place where God will choose which means the court must be in the place of central worship. That's where it must reside to create a connection between these two situations, not just for religious law, but for capital and civil law as well. Now, Hamakom Asher Yivchar Hashem, which is used over and over in the Mishneh Torah, 
uh, of course, post facto means Jerusalem. And while Shiloh preceded it, Joshua set up Shiloh as sort of the first temple, I suspect that Joshua knew that Shiloh was only a temporary measure and that the temple must ultimately reside in Benjamin's territory, specifically at Har HaMoriah. Uvata el ha-koanim ha-levim ve'el ha-shofet asher yeh ba-yamim ahem v'darashta v'higidu l'cha et tavar ha-mishpat v'asit al-pi ha-davar sh'yagidu l'cha min ha-makom ha-hu asher yivchar Adonai v'shamarta la'asot kol asher yarucha al-pi ha-torah asher yarucha v'al ha-mishpat asher yomaru l'cha ta'aseh lo tasur min ha-davar asher yagidu l'cha yaminu small and you will come to the koanim and the political leader that will exist in those days which supports the idea that we're talking here about religious law which is the Cohen's job and legal disputes, which are the uh, that is uh, civil and capital disputes, which are uh, which is the political the shofet's job, and you will uh, go. To, they will inform you of the legal ruling, and you will do according to the ruling that they will tell you from the place that the Lord will choose. Meaning, the Supreme Court is the final word, and you will ma- will make sure to do everything they instruct you based on the Torah, which here means the instruction that they will instruct you, and according to the ruling that they will tell you, you must follow. Do not deviate from the ruling that they will tell you, neither to the right nor the left. Now, oral law understands this reference to right and left, meaning even if they tell you that right is left and left is right, you must follow it. And, and the point of the oral law is not, it's not trying to be silly or foolish. It's not trying to say the courts could do whatever they want and you have no choice but to listen to them. It means that sometimes rulings either appear not to be correct or might even not be correct. It does happen. Nonetheless, when a high court rules, if everyone could start guessing the ruling, then what you get is anarchy. The entire legal system falls apart. And if the entire legal system falls apart, so too does the state. That is sometimes you have to grin and bear it. I mean, obviously the court is not going to make the wrong decisions all the time. Otherwise we'll find a new Supreme Court justice. But by and large, you gotta to listen to the way things go because without it, there is no state. Without, with no state, there is no people. With no people, there is no mission. Now, obviously, the courts will make every effort to distinguish between right and right, or in this case, right and left. Right, they'll call right, and left, they'll call left. Left, but, but, um, the, the issue is not here uh, so much on, on the cases, but on the viability of the system, the way the system needs to operate in order for the state of Israel to be, to flourish. So, And the person who acts intentionally, from the word mezid, to reject either the, the acting Kohen, meaning the high priest, that the Lord is appointed, meaning for religious rulings, or the shofet, the ruler for civil and capital rulings, that man must die so the evil may be expunged from Israel and the whole nation will hear and they will fear and will cease to intentionally transgress. Again, the issue is an issue of anarchy, which is a sure road to national dissolution.